welcome to the Bold Love Podcast with Pastor Bob Roberts Jr., where we highlight the uncommon journeys of bridge builders and peacemakers that are living out their faith in the public square by boldly loving their neighbor and working together to build resilient communities. Our goal here on the podcast is to encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, learn how to better love your neighbor, and learn how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. You are in for a special treat today. We are honored to have a trio of experts on religious freedom here on the podcast today, and we will dive into the great accomplishments of religious freedom over the past decade or so, along with the uh, biggest hurdles that we still need to overcome or be addressed. So Pastor Bob Roberts will lead us on this uh, roundtable with very special guests, including two former ambassadors at large for international religious freedom. And that's Ambassador David Saperstein and Ambassador Sam Brownback, along with Uzma Udin from the Aspen Institute. So this was an incredible conversation that takes on rules of law and rules of the heart in a true bridge building fashion. But before we dive into this episode, a quick reminder that if you're new to the Bold Love podcast and you haven't heard any of our episodes from season one, you need to check these out. They can be heard on your preferred podcast player or at bobrobertsjr.com. Uh, we had guests like Beth Moore and Sheikh Hamza Yusuf and Dr. Russell Moore and Omar Suleiman and so many more. So please go and check those out if you haven't before. Let's get right to it. Here we go. I hope you enjoy this special roundtable episode of the Bold Love Podcast. And I want to introduce you to the host of the Bold Love Podcast, Pastor Bob Roberts Jr. Enjoy. So let me introduce our guests today. I, I could read books on all the things that they've done. Let me just give you just a snapshot. Uh, Rabbi David Saperstein, he's one of the tri-founders of Multi-Faith Neighbors Network, along with Majid and myself. Uh, he's also an American rabbi and a lawyer, a Jewish community leader who serves as United States and chief legal counsel for the Union for Reform Judaism's Religious Action Center. Uh, the thing that I know him most of is the ambassador at large for religious freedom under President Obama. He's a graduate of Cornell Hebrew Union College and the Jewish Institute of Religion and has his JD from Washington College of Law at American University. Uzma Udin, I'm so excited you're here, Uzma. I've listened to her talk. I've read her books. Uh, she's currently an expert advisor on religious liberty to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe the Inclusive America Project Fellow at the Aspen Institute, a senior scholar at the Freedom Forum Institute. Uh, she's also a Berkeley Center Research Fellow and has served as counsel for the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty uh, and has served as director for the Initiative on Security and Religious Freedom at UCLA Berkeley Center. She's written books. She's got a brand new book out today. I've got it on the way. I've been tweeting it. I can't wait to read it. The Politics of Vulnerability. I love that. And uh, yeah. I, I cannot wait to get my own copy. Uh, she's a phenomenal writer, a fantastic lady, sharp mind, a rising star. We're excited, Uzma, that you would join us today. Thank you so much. And Thank then you, 
<laughs> Thank you. And then Ambassador Sam Brownback uh, is another American attorney. What is, what is it about these ambassadors for religious freedom? They're all lawyers. That's scary. P politician, diplomat, served the United States, served as the United States ambassador at large for international religious freedom uh, from 2018 to 2021, served as Secretary of Agriculture of Kansas, the U.S. representative uh, for the Second Congressional District in Kansas, uh, United States Senator, the 46th governor of Kansas. He also ran uh, for the Republican nomination for president in 2008. Graduate of Kansas State University, University of Kansas, where he received his JD. And one of the most important things about all three of these people, they're my friends. And, I, and I'm grateful that they're here today. So it's, it's one thing to talk to people. It's another thing to get to visit with people that you know, you believe in, and you respect. So thank you all for being here. So we're just going to jump right in. And we're going to start with you, David. And then depending on how much time we have, we'll take some questions. Here's the question. Uh, during your time and your work in religious freedom, Ambassador Saperstein, uh, during that time and since that time, what have you seen? as the greatest advances we've made in the area of religious freedom, what would you say are still significant challenges that we face? Okay, so you'll be relieved, uh, my dear friend Bob Roberts, to know that our three predecessors uh, as uh, ambassador at large for religious freedom before Ambassador Brambach and myself were not lawyers. Um, so uh, there is some diversity okay. um, there. Um, as usual with people who um, who uh, are are asked to speak on uh, in response to a question, they'll end up answering the question they want to answer rather than the question that was uh, asked. So I, I have been asked in the prior conversation just to kind of give the context for, for the question you've put before us uh, a little more broadly and to address both a bit the domestic and in the international scene. So here you go. Buckle up. I'm going to do this really fast. Um, first, um, uh, prior to the United States of America, the rights that people had in the rest Western world, pretty much anywhere across the globe, were derivative rights, subsidiary uh, rights that they had by dint of their membership in some group beyond themselves. It could be an economic group. It could be a religious group. Um, it, it could be an ethnic group. Um, but the rights they had came from their participation in a group. There are few precursors of the idea of individual rights as we have it, uh, as we know it uh, today. Um, so the rights came from group membership. The United States flipped the relationship of the group, the state, the group, um, and the individual on its head. It asserted that the rights we have come from within. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights um, uh, here. And the role of the government was not to give us those rights, or rather to protect those God-given rights. Um, yeah, this is a revolutionary notion. And what it allowed, uh, and we enshrined in our First Amendment, what fundamental rights we were beginning to talk about, freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom to petition the government for redress of grievances, to associate with like-minded people, freedom of worship, and freedom to be free of religious coercion um, in the separation of, uh, of uh, church and state. Um, it allowed individual conscience to flourish uh, and the uh, and the role of government 
was, as I said, to secure those rights. Uh, religious freedom had a special place because we founded this country by many groups of people who fled religious persecution, who knew the danger of what happened when religion and state would be linked together. Um, and uh, that made America somewhat different. And even today in the world, the kind of separation of church and state that we have in the United States is uh, a bit stronger um, and more fundamental than it is in many other countries uh, across the globe, even democracies across the globe, many of which have government-sponsored, government-established, government-preferred um, uh, religions. Um, th that what began a regime of rights that really, like many of our promised rights, didn't get fully implemented until the mid 20th century when the Supreme Court of the United States began to um, apply the First Amendment's religion clauses in a, in a far more assertive and robust way. Um, uh, hearing just at the time that that happened, we began to be writing international covenants of fundamental rights. So the ideas that the Supreme Court gave in its robust interpretation of religious freedom, of religious conscience, of uh, separation of church and state. Um, many of those ideas got um, embodied into the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and eventually into the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights that are the foundations of the schema of uh, human rights on the international scene that so many others uh, bought into. Um, so we've seen in the 20th century a flourishing of human rights and a flourishing of uh, religious freedom, um, since the end of World War II and the horrors of World War II um, and the fascist oppression of fundamental rights, um, we saw a general growth of rights that certainly got uh, spurred when the when the communist regimes uh, in, in Russia and Eastern Europe uh, fell. Uh, we saw an expansion of human rights and religious freedom. But beginning in 2005, according to uh, Pew and other groups that follow these patterns, there has been a shrinking of uh, human rights. And in the last few years, it's, it is escalated. Um, uh, here, we've seen increasing religious oppression. Uh, we've seen increasing authoritarian growth of authoritarian states, repression of other fundamental rights of speech press uh, to uh, protest uh, government policies. Um, here, so that's a fast over view as to um, what made America great. In the United States, um, uh, here, in the ebb and flow of consensus about what our rights mean, we are living at a, a very particular moment where we have seen enormous tension between two fundamental sets of values. And the hardest public policy positions are those that pit two moral principles in tension with each other, where here we have religious freedom claims being made in a very broad way by religious individuals and religious organizations and religious entities um, uh, here uh, coming into tension with core civil rights um, protections. Civil rights protections of women, civil rights protections that are growingly found in both our, the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Constitution in many states um, and localities in terms of LGBTQ rights um, uh, here. Uh, but it pits that tension in, in a far greater way, because if you have a religious right to discriminate 
um, against a group because of their uh, sexual orientation or gender identity that are protected by civil rights laws or because of their gender such a, uh, or sex, such as uh, in terms of uh, discrimination against women, um, then where does that stop? Do you also have a religious claim um, uh, on the basis of national origin, on the basis of religion? Can people put a sign in their stores saying no Jews will be served here, no Muslims will be served here, no Catholics will be served here, no evangelicals will be served here, none will be hired here, um, uh, etc. How do you bring a stop to that? Um, here, On the other hand, um, uh, here, if people don't have a right to live by their religious conscience in accordance with the religious values, can you have free um, uh, freedom of religion? That's the tension we have right now. It is a very vexing, difficult set of problems. We felt it in the pandemic in terms of uh, public safety being pitted against religious um, uh, freedom. Uh, and America is struggling with that. I'm sure we'll hear more about that um, uh, later. Um, I pray for the day when the problems on the international scene will be how to best balance out competing sets of civil rights against religious freedom. On the international scene, that's not at all what we face. We face um, a horrific oppression and persecution of human rights in too many countries across the globe. It comes from the following sources, from non-state actors like ISIS and Boko Haram and Christian militias in the Central African Republic a few years ago and uh, right-wing settlers on the West Bank, um, uh, Jewish settlers in West Bank in, um, in Israel by extremist groups um, uh, here who believe so fully that they know God's truth, that they're willing to use any force to impose it on uh, other individuals. Secondly, you find it um, in terms of specific religious laws, most particularly like blasphemy laws, with a quarter of the countries having blasphemy laws on the books. Fortunately, about half of them don't really implement it, but it means a, a, a couple score of countries really do enforce them, uh, 11 or so with death penalties um, uh, attached to them. What is blasphemy? It is being punished with uh, prison or death simply for expressing your views in accordance with your conscience. Third, you have the broad regulation of religion that many countries, particularly many former communist countries, um, simply oppose as a way to kind of regulate forces um, that they want to control. Authoritarian authoritarian uh, countries of all kinds are always frightened by people organizing their identity around, uh, around uh, ideas and principles and institutions that they can't control. And religion is one example of that. And they try to therefore uh, impose their control over a re with all kinds of swamp. You got to register to do this and you got to register to do that. You need the government's permission to fix your building. You need your government's permission every year to have a religious school or to celebrate your holidays, those kinds of restrictions. And finally, you have um, uh, societal tensions 
between um, uh, uh, forces that happen. Uh, think of the growing clashes between um, Hindus and Muslims with growing Hindu nationalism in India. Similar clashes have gone on for a while um, in, in Pakistan. Um, I said, finally, but then you have countries that as a matter of law, repress, um, prefer one religion or no religion. Um, uh, countries like Iran or Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia can't have worship of any non-Muslim religion publicly in Saudi Arabia um, and sharp restrictions on freedom of religion in Iran. Uh, Baha'is and many other uh, groups is subject to all kinds of uh, repression and persecution um, here. There are a number of countries, many of them, uh, <coughs> the dozen or so, who end up being on the countries of particular concern named by the U.S. Uh, government. And in China, which is an equal opportunity oppressor. It oppresses all religions, regulating those that are allowed to exist far more extensively <clears throat> than even the normal uh, repressive laws that uh, countries impose, regulatory laws that country, uh, countries impose on them. Um, they're but engaging in genocidal activity um, against Uyghur Muslims uh, now. Um, the cultural genocide that's gone on in Tibet uh, for a long period of time, the decimation of the Falun Gong um, uh, leadership throughout the um, uh, throughout the country. Uh, this is a center, and we see ethnic cleansing in Myanmar of the Rohingya Muslims. So many forms of this take very, very intense forms um, that result in massive killings, crimes against humanity, um, uh, uh, here ethnic cleansing and, and genocide um, uh, here. So that's a fast overview. Um, things have been going, unfortunately, in the wrong direction um, here. The United States needs to to be a robust protector of religious freedom. That issue, international religious freedom, cuts across uh, ideologies and cuts across um, uh, uh, partisan divides in this country. It's why I've been such an admirer um, and such a follower of uh, Ambassador Sam Brambach. Um, and we worked together when he was a senator and we worked together um, when he was in the uh, State Department and he was totally supportive when I was in the State Department. Department on the on these issues um, uh, here. We need something that Asma Uden has uh, so giftedly led for the Aspen Institute, a vision of an inclusive America and an inclusive world um, uh, here in which is respect for people. Uh, it, whatever their beliefs in the peaceful exercise of uh, their religious conscience and uh, and their religious beliefs. Um, this is Passover, um, uh, the Jewish holiday that represents the fact that Jews have been the quintessential victims of religious persecutions um, uh, throughout the gold globe. We know all too well what happens when good people stand idly by um, as groups are oppressed um, because of uh, their race, their sex, um, their sexual identity, um, their ethnic uh, uh, origin, their uh, religious beliefs. Um, here, we know what happens when that, and that's why all of us stand together here uh, when we see historic um, Christian and Yazidi communities in Syria and Iraq having been devastated over the last uh, decade, when we see Baha'is in Iran and Tibetan Buddhists and Uyghur Muslims in China and Shia Muslims, Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and Rohingya Muslims um, in Burma and clashes um, between groups. Um, it, we're not victims of, uh, of these problems. We've seen who's 
Uzbekistan and Sudan make significant improvements. We do see improvements. And in part, that's because of the investment of democracies and particularly the United States to support interfaith cooperation, um, democratic structures, the rule of law in countries. And it takes time, sometimes decades till the impact is felt. But that's what we are. Um, uh, that's what uh, our role is in the world today. And it is needed more than ever before. So to the religiously oppressed in every land who live in fear, who are afraid to speak of their beliefs, who worship in underground churches and mosques or temples, lest authorities discover or punish their devotion to an authority higher than the state, who languish in prison simply because they love God in their own way, who question the existence of God, who feel so desperate they must flee their homes to avoid persecution to all of them, um, America must stand as a bastion of freedom committed that they too will be able to fulfill the promise of living in accordance with their religious, peaceful religious beliefs um, and practices um, in a way that will enhance all of humankind. And that's what I believe holds us together. I love it, David. It's incredible. Thank you so much for that. You heard it right here. A real live liberal Democrat Jewish ambassador that I love with all my heart. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uzma, you research this stuff. Tell us what you've been learning. Where are things headed? What's the good? What's the bad? I do research these things, and I'm also a lawyer, um, and I've litigated for quite a bit. Um, so I want to focus a little bit today on some court cases in the U.S. that I think are showing us um, some, some strong advances in religious freedom. Um, and I, I especially appreciate what is happening at the Supreme Court and some of these cases and, and in the legal advocacy more broadly, because I, too, spent some time doing international religious freedom advocacy. Uh, I still keep it, you know, sort of one foot in that space. And absolutely, exactly as Rabbi Saperstein said, it's just the, the comparison between what's happening abroad and what's happening here is just is stark. I mean, abroad, there are questions, the questions I was dealing with were uh, literally posed, uh, you know, questions of, of life and death, right? Um, it, and it gives you me a, a sense of, um, you know, perspective on like when you look at what's going on in the U.S. and things are definitely a big mess in the U.S. and increasingly so with each passing day. Um, it gives me some idea in terms of just the urgency to my advocacy as to what can happen here if we're not careful, because I've seen kind of what the, what the worst case scenario looks like abroad. So in terms of, um, you know, you asked us today to speak about some of the, the greatest advances that we've seen in religious freedom and some of the, the biggest challenges. And so I do want to divide my talk in, in those two sort of buckets. And so starting with some of the greatest advances, again, I do want to talk about some of the Supreme Court cases. That I think sometimes people don't follow these things very closely. But the types of precedent that's being created by the court, I think, uh, bodes well for religious freedom in the future. And so I think in terms of recent Supreme Court wins, I, I think the cases are really sort of capture um, where like this sort of robust protection for religious freedom often uh, includes a doctrine called a ministerial exception. And it, it captures really some of our protections under both the free exercise clause and the establishment clause. And in those cases, we see the court offering wide protection for religious voluntarism. What is religious voluntarism? It's about keeping the government from interfering with the voluntary choices by citizens that are religious, as well as walling off from state interfer interference, the internal autonomy of religious bodies. 
And so, for example, in 2012, there was a case of the Supreme Court decided unanimously, it was called Susanna Tabor Evangelical Lutheran Church and School versus EEOC. Hosanna Tabor operates a K-8 school founded on biblical principles. Cheryl, Cheryl Perrick was a commissioned minister in the church, and she taught fourth grade, she taught religion, and she led worship services. And she was dismissed for insubordination and disruptive conduct and for threatening to sue the church because all of those things violated church teachings. The church and its denomination has long taught that any disputes about whether you're fit for ministry have to be resolved within its denomination. You can't sue the church. So in the case, Perrick claimed that the school retaliated against her for threatening to file a discrimination claim. And the church argued that forcing it to retain Perrick against its will or forcing it to pay large sums of money just to be able to fire her would be an unconstitutional restriction on its right to choose religious leaders. And in January 2012, the court agreed with the church and unanimously, again, this is all liberal and conservative justices upheld the right of religious organizations to choose their own ministers. And it said that under the First Amendment, the government needs to stay out of the church's business when it comes to choosing church leaders. And the reason for that is because church leaders reflect and embody church principles. You can't just have anyone be a leader. And so in, the, in the case, the government said churches should be just like any other social group when it comes to choosing leaders. But the court rejected that argument. And the government said, fine, you can apply the special rule in those cases where the employee per performs religious duties only. But the court rejected that argument, too, and pointed out that not even the Pope would satisfy the government's proposed test because he performs secular functions as a head of the Vatican State. And so Hosanna Tabor was a resounding victory for church autonomy. And this past July, the court again upheld the ministerial exception in another case called Our Lady of Guadalupe. And just as in Hosanna Tabor, the court in the Our Lady case this past July said the Constitution prohibits the government from interfering with church doctrine and beliefs. Because if it did, a judge could tell the church what it believes or what it should believe and how important a belief is or should be to a church's overall mission. And in some parts of the world, again, I mean, this is exactly what the government does. And it leads to a lot of abuse. And so it's really, really significant how the U.S. and our courts here understand the broader implications and protect religious autonomy vigorously. More sort of relevant and, and, and very present for us right now are the issues dealing with COVID restrictions on houses of worship. And we've seen lots of sort of like this tension between religious freedom and the ability to have you know, proper space to be to engage in religious worship, but also keeping in mind the, the sort of the issues raised by a deadly disease. And this, this tension was in part resolved the night before Thanksgiving when the Supreme Court ruled against the COVID-19 restrictions imposed by New York Governor Andrew Cuomo on religious services. So two groups brought that case. One was, one was the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn, and then the other one was the Orthodox Jewish organization, Agadath Israel. And the court decided 5-4 that Cuomo's restrictions violated the First Amendment. Now, the public response to, to the decision was very critical, with much of the criticism focused less on the specifics of the case than on the religious claimants as essentially proxies for pandemic-denying Trumpism. And I'll get to this in a bit when I discuss some of the biggest challenges facing religious freedom today. But first, let me tell you about the case. The applications the court considered both stated that Cuomo's regulations violated the First Amendment rights because they were unduly restrictive. So under the regulations in areas marked red zones, no more than 10 people were permitted to attend religious services. And orange zones, no more than 25 people were permitted, even in cases where the church can seat more than 1,000 people. 
So the, law- the lawyers for the Roman Catholic Diocese argue that its spacious churches are safer than many of the secular businesses that have no restrictions, and that its hour-long mass takes the same or less time as trips to big box stores, acupuncture facilities, and nine-to-five jobs. One health department official even testified that a large store in Brooklyn could have hundreds of shoppers present at any given moment, but a, but a nearby church or synagogue was prohibited from having more than 10 or 25 worshipers inside. And this, the court said, quote unquote, was troubling. It absolutely agreed that the regulations were supported by a compelling interest, citing coronavirus, but the regulations weren't proportionate. They went way beyond what was needed to prevent the spread of the virus. As Cuomo himself had concluded before the court decided the case, the religious claimants were better suited for the yellow zone restrictions. It wasn't that they were saying we shouldn't have any restrictions at all. They were just saying the restrictions that you imposed on us are absolutely disproportionate to the risks that we're proposing with respect to the spread of the coronavirus. And so that's the really important part, right? Because more important than what the court said, and it only very specifically said that it needs to just be narrowly tailored, what it did not say was that religious organizations are free to flout COVID-19 protocols. And noted in particular that the diocese had consistently been ahead of the curve enforcing stricter safety protocols than the state required and that the Orthodox Jewish group had rigorously implemented health protocols. And yet many people painted the ruling as giving religious freedom to become COVID super spreaders. And this gets to one, one, like I think probably one of the biggest challenges that we see facing religious freedom today in the U.S., and I think there's definitely sort of resonances of this in terms of the starker persecution that we're seeing abroad, is just the way that these things are misinterpreted and skewed in really extreme ways. So in response to this Cuomo case, commentators painted the religious claimants as selfish and dangerous actors who care little about their congregations or communities and flaunt the seriousness of the pandemic. The New York Times columnist Paul Krugman tweeted, the first major decision of the Trump PAC court, and naturally it will kill people. The Center for American Progress chided the ruling, religious freedom is a core American value, not a license to spread a deadly virus. And Cuomo dismissed the ruling as mere ideology. He said, we know who he appointed to the court. We know their ideology. Meanwhile, Amy COVID Barrett was trending on social media. So for many critics then, the ruling was wholly Trumpist. It was just another sort of reflection of Trumpism. And now it is true that many Trump supporters have flouted health restrictions in the name of religious freedom. But it is also true that most religious organizations have complied with safety protocols. The religious claimants in the Cuomo case belonged to the latter group. They implemented safety protocols with great care. And their request was modest. All they were saying was, was for the government to refrain from imposing red and orange zone restrictions as long as those restrictions were disproportionate to the risk being created. So it's proportionate. They were totally fine with it. But Trumpism ruined it for them and for other religious Americans like them. Both the court's ruling and the religious claimants were dismissed as ideologically driven, selfish, anti-science Americans who deny the severity of the pandemic and are a public health risk to their fellow citizens. This partisan response to the court ruling was predictable. Numerous surveys have found that religious freedom, while popular, has become associated with partisan politics. One national survey from November found that when a generic religious freedom statement was attributed to Trump, people were less supportive of religious freedom than they were when the statement was attributed to Biden or to some sort of unnamed presidential candidate. Democrats in particular were turned off when support for religious freedom was linked to former President Trump, and their support declined substantially while, Repo- while Republican support increased. So it's easy to see how we got here. The Trump administration aligns itself with religious freedom for conservative Christians. 
It often presented itself as a heroic defender of those interests, though to truly be heroic, there has to be a sense that you're fighting off a major threat. And the administration did exactly that by emphasizing over and over that liberals are waging a war on religion and traditional Christianity in particular. COVID-19 was then co-opted by this polarization. A number of Republican politicians emphasized the negative impact of shutdown orders and health codes on religious worship and overwhelmed governors of both parties with the deluge of, of lawsuits. Today, a majority of Republicans feel that Christians face high levels of religious discrimination and more discrimination than minority groups. So this, separately, but relatedly, I think there's also a very significant hurdle facing religious liberty of minorities. And I've written about this pretty extensively in my first book that came out in 2019, which was titled When Islam is Not a Religion Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom, where I talk about this so this rise of this claim, especially among people who value religious freedom, to deny it to Muslims by saying that Islam is not a religion and therefore Muslims don't get religious freedom. And I, that, but I sort of took the next step with that analysis in my book that came out just this past Tuesday that I was showing you guys earlier called The Politics of Vulnerability, where I talk about how political tribalism really sort of drives these sort of attacks on religious minorities, because it is a sense of threat, a sense of that a lot of, for example, conservative white Christians are feeling in terms of their place in this country and the identity of the country. And oftentimes that feeling of threat then leads them to engage in acts of hostility against groups that they think are, are threatening to, to their place in this country. And so, you know, it's a question of political tribalism. It's a question of the growing polarization. I mean, I think everybody knows that we are more polarized now than ever before. And I think it just sort of was a natural sort of realization for me to be like, well, if everything else is so deeply polarized and so is are driven by our political tribalism, it's absolutely naive to think that our that religion, religious freedom, and our approaches to other religious groups are not driven by that same polarization. And I see that happening, and I see very strong negative impacts uh, ranging everything, for example, from sort of dismissing the severity of, of hurt uh, and hate crimes and, and suffering that other religious groups are undergoing. So that's like the simplest form, the dismissal of it. Um, and there's plenty of sort of polling data that shows this. Uh, to straight up, like, you know, advocacy against people's rights, that when Islam is not a religion phenomenon, right, to say that Islam is not a religion. And it's a claim that I actually heard in the context of a lawsuit um, where the challengers were trying to stop a mosque from, from being built. And then, of course, abroad, we see this reflected in, some, in far worse things, such as violence and, and genocide. Um, so I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges both here and abroad is political tribalism and the polarization of religious liberty. And so even as we are making major gains in our jurisprudence, I worry sometimes about the impact of these politics and, and our growing divides. Thank you. Thank you, Ozma. You know, you would think religious freedom is a piece of cake, and it's not, is it? There's a, and, and I hate it's been politicized. Uh, I, I don't like that, but but it has. So thank you, Ozma. I, uh, I got to know Ambassador Brownback uh, when he came into uh, his position, and there's not a man that I have have been more impressed with than him, how he's handled himself, how he's carried himself. He's a picture of what it means to cross the aisle, of what it means to work with people that he disagrees with. Uh, Ambassador Saperstein is the same. I'll never forget, uh, David and I were uh, in Bangladesh. We were meeting with, I think it was the foreign minister, and he started talking to David about the new administration. And David had every opportunity to be negative or critical. That wasn't his spirit. He said, you're going to love working with Ambassador Brownback. He's a great man. That always impressed me, 
And I thought, man, why can't our politics be like that? And I've watched Ambassador Brownback the exact same way and how he's treated uh, uh, Ambassador Saperstein and others that he's worked with. There's been a tremendous amount of movement uh, globally in religious freedom. This was not something new for Ambassador Brownback. It's something that, that has been deep within him. So thank you. Uh, we heard from a, a, a Democrat ambassador for religious freedom at large. Now we get to hear from a Republican ambassador for religious freedom at large. So Ambassador Brownback, talk to us. The good, hey, thanks. the bad, the ugly. What do you see? Well, thanks. Thanks, Bobby Jean. Appreciate that. Uh, I like to use uh, Bob's earlier name in his life. He's just such a great guy. Uh, and uh, and just it just brings this fun, uh, active spirit uh, to his work. And I just I, I love working with you. Rabbi Saperstein, he and I look at the job we both had. And I would say there probably wouldn't be five degrees of difference about how we both treated it. And he's I don't think I'm misstating to say you're a liberal Democrat or a progressive Democrat. And I have a voting record of a conservative Republican. And I have the I have the stripes to show for it as well. <laughs> and yet we, we wouldn't have treated this job. Like I say, five degrees different. Probably we had the same chief of staff and Dan Nadal uh, that worked the place. And that but that's because on international religious freedom, we really did have this view that kind of the politics ended at the water's edge, which used to be the stance of the U.S. government on foreign policy. Uh, and we said, you know, our objective here is to project religious freedom. And as Osma pointed out, um, the, the challenges overseas, you're just trying basically to keep people alive and out of jail. Uh, here, you know, we're really getting into much more of the nuance and the conflict of rights that, that uh, David talked about. And it's tough. They're tough discussions. And I've been involved in the, the discussions in the U.S. when I was in the Congress. Um, and, you know, they, they are. Uh, they're difficult. Overseas, it's hard. And then the other thing I hope your listeners will grab on to uh, is that in 2005, and I didn't I hadn't really pegged a date on it, David, but that sounds good to me. Uh, we started losing ground on the Human Rights Global Project. Uh, around the world, we uh, from up until then, really, I thought with it, we many of us viewed it as this was just a, a universal march towards human rights, and it was going to continue, and we're just going to get it done, and history is over, and we've won. Human rights wins, uh, and we started losing, uh, and we've lost ground. Then you've got large percentage of the world facing substantial religious persecution, either by the government or communal violence in, in most of the world. Most of the world's population lives in that. Osma, I, I thought, just did a brilliant, really, I think, characterization and, and legal analysis of it. So how do you go at it? So while I was ambassador, we decided let's start breaking apart the, the, the human rights project into its component pieces. And let's go just at the human right of religious freedom before the, the UN project is to put them all together. Let's put all the human rights together and we're going to try to lump and push them all together. We said, let's start breaking it down into its component parts and pushing on it. So we started pushing on religious freedom. We did ministerials with foreign ministers from around the world. We had over 100 uh, countries represented at our second ministerial on religious freedom. 
And we had countries say, what are they interested in? We started an international religious freedom or belief alliance. And now some 40 countries participate. Not all of them are members of it, but about 40 participate in this alliance. And we talk about things like doing away with the death penalty for blasphemy or apostasy laws, the protection of religious institutions um, in conflict zones, the allowance of uh, say the, the Tibetan Buddhism to pick its next Dalai Lama, that that right doesn't belong to the Chinese government. It belongs to the Tibetan Buddhist people and their religious institution has the right to pick that. Uh, we started uh, pushing uh, religious freedom roundtables around the world. And this is kind of the grassroots efforts. So we want to see in Sudan a, a group of religious adherents that are Muslim and Christian and Jewish and other faith animists uh, and of no faith at all come together and stand for each other's religious freedom. And our standard can be put in one sentence. We believe in religious freedom for everybody, everywhere, all the time. It applies to everybody. It applies everywhere. It applies all the time. You have this basic peaceful right. Now, if you're going to be violent about it, that's a whole different kettle of fish. But your peaceful practice of religious freedom, everybody's entitled to it as a God-given right that no government has the right to interfere with. And we started really pushing that standard. We got during the pandemic about 2000 plus religious prisoners released around the world. And we really pushed on government saying, you know, now this is a during the pandemic, being in a prison is a dangerous place to be. And these people are here for peacefully practicing their faith. They should be released. They shouldn't be there in the first place and got over 2000 released. And then you know, I want to say finally on this, the, the big the big problem, I, that's, the, that's not a fair way to put it, but my biggest concern in the world uh, is China. Uh, and as Rabbi Saperstein put it, he said, they're an equal opportunity oppressor. They'll, they go after the Falun Gong, the Tibetans, the Muslims, the Christians. They go after everybody equally. They don't. And it's the nature of communism. Communism has trouble with religion. They, they, it's officially atheistic. And so religion sees to a higher moral authority and they don't agree with it. The problem with China is it's seeking to compete with the United States and with the Western world on a set of values that it says its values are equal to those of free and open democracies. And their value is you get to oppress religion. And it's not only that, they've got a great deal of wealth they're putting into it uh, and and this is the part that really is concerning me the most, the, the, the use now of technology directed at religious oppression and to put down these groups. It's not about so much anymore in the future, how many people are you sending to jail? How many people are you killing that are religious uh, 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 people of conscience? It's now going to be everybody watched by a camera, everybody with a DNA sample, uh, everybody tracked. If you go to the mosque, you get a lower social credit score. You get excluded from housing. You get excluded from education. And in the future, if they go to everything being online currency, digital currency, you may be excluded from participating in the economy. And they, they've started that system. They started it in Tibet. They got it now in the Uyghur region of Xinjiang. Uh, it's starting to spread to other authoritarian regimes. 
And that ability to oppress people of religious faith is to me one of the most concerning diabolical things really going on in the world today. I was delighted that we were able to get out the door. Secretary Pompeo did the calling of what was happening to the Uyghurs as genocide on the last full day uh, in office. And um, so, that, I mean, the fight's engaged. Uh, but we, we, this was put forward to me by a, a Tibetan. He said, either the world will change China or China will change the world. And I don't know how the odds makers in Vegas right now would make that bet right now. Who's going to win that fight? But it is that scale of fight. And in this, fortunately, I believe the United States is quite well united that we don't we don't agree with their system as many problems as we may have. And we do have problems. I don't want that authoritarian system where Xi Jinping can wake up any morning of the day and decide we're doing this and that's what happens. I don't agree. Uh, and we've got to win this fight. So we've had some good uh, successes, I think. Uzbekistan was talked about a little bit earlier. Sudan, removing the, the apostasy laws. Uh, we've got some places trending poorly. Nigeria uh, is setting up a a genocide if it isn't there now. Turkey, unfortunately, is really getting much more this aggressive type of uh, nationalistic use of, of Islam. Uh, but the big one, the, the big one's really China. We just we have to win this ideological fight with China on its war on faith uh, or we're going to we're going to lose around a lot of the world. Uh, and I'm not I've not addressed the domestic situation here. I'm just I'm most freshly recently familiar with the international. And I really wanted to stay with that. And Usman and, and uh, Rabbi Saperstein both covered that that well. Thank you, Ambassador. It's incredible. And, and just jump in. Any or all of you or one of you can answer these questions. Just more of a discussion now. How, how would you say religious freedom for me affects religious freedom for other people? I think, Bob, I would I would start by rephrasing that and saying, you know, I think what's something pretty common in the religious freedom advocacy space, that religious freedom for some is religious freedom for none. Um, and this idea that all of our rights are intrinsically connected. I mean, from a legal perspective, it's pretty clear that it's less relevant who the party is and which religion the party belongs to in a particular case and more the, the, the precedent that's created. And I think people very often forget that when it comes to religious freedom um, in terms of like the specific religious belief or specific religious claim that matters less than what the court is saying about the way that the free exercise clause, the establishment clause or the religious freedom restoration act, for example, it should be interpreted. Um, and I think we have to always understand that interpretation and the precedent that's being created in terms of when it's us, if it's, you know, maybe we don't understand that religious claim, but we can understand that having a robust um, protection for religious freedom will protect us too. Um, and I think the, the philosophical perspective on which the foundation on which religious freedom is based, um, this idea that, you know, we're all, all of us, regardless of what our specific beliefs are, or maybe even our decision not to be religious, um, are in sort of this mutual quest for, for meaning and purpose in our life, that we're sort of duty bound to live in a way that's authentic to our understanding of the world and, a, and of a higher being, um, and just understanding that, that the shared 
religiousness, a shared, the shared element of whatever that quest is, I think is the way I think of, uh, you know, what I think of when you say religious freedom for me is intrinsically connected to religious freedom for others. That is fantastic. I, yeah, it's well said. I just, you know, the way I look at it is um, the founders were brilliant on giving us these, these foundational rights and finding them as rights from God that the government's role was to protect, like Rabbi Saperstein said, and that no government has the right to interfere with these. And that's just, that is the way it needs to be seen. And as we move, if we move away from that, concept and say, well, no, there's some of these that, you know, I don't, I'm not so sure about, or they can be abused by somebody, as long as they're peacefully practiced. When it's, when it's not peaceful, then that's another kettle of fish. I had, uh, while I was governor of Kansas, I had a man attack a synagogue uh, in Kansas City, uh, looking to shoot and kill Jewish people. He shot and killed two Christians. But he, he was trying to do that. And we prosecuted him to the full extent of the law. I had two radical Muslim extremists that self-radicalized, tried to blow up buildings in the state. Those gentlemen are behind bars and locked up uh, and going to be for a good period of time. But, but most Muslim adherents, most Christians adherents, look, I just want to peacefully practice my faith. This is my, my, my soul. And so if you do peacefully, we must stand up and protect that right. And they will, they will do great charitable things too. And they do do great charitable things. So I just, I think what we've got to do is say, we are robustly going to protect religious freedom for all. If you don't, if you're not going to peacefully practice this, then you violated then you violated the law and you're going to have the book thrown at you. You know, so I, just to build on what uh, both of my colleagues have said here, um, the, uh, the test for religious freedom has to include the proposition that even small unpopular religions have a right to be protected. Um, and, you know, the problem is that Christianity may be a majority religion in the United States, but it's a minority religion in many other areas around the world where it's subject to persecution. You, you can't win by, by just saying, oh, only the popular religions in this country are going to have religious freedom. Um, it's interesting, by the way, in the United States, uh, if I put aside the New York case that Asma had, had talked about, which arguably would be an exception, um, Jews have never won a case that went before the Supreme Court of the United States. We've lost them all. Um, here, the Sunday closing laws, the Yamaka case um, uh, here, uh, uh, some of the questions about schools and school districts and stuff uh, in general, um, we've lost. We've won them because Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses and a whole bunch of other religions that are you know, far less popular um, uh, or le less understood religions have been upheld by the court. And everybody, every religion benefited um, uh, by it. Um, but the other side of the proposition, one proposition is that you have to cover all religions, um, uh, no matter what their beliefs you can believe whatever you want, no matter how repulsive um, you, you, another religious group might think your uh, religious beliefs are, but you must peacefully practice them, as the ambassador said. But the proposition on the other side in terms of government is 
No one's rights as a citizen of any country should ever depend upon their religious identity, practices, uh, peaceful practices or beliefs. Um, uh, here. Otherwise, you can't have religious freedom. So you have this two things covering every group and every uh, involved in peaceful practice. And the other is no one's rights as a citizen um, uh, should uh, uh, should be a bridge because of their religious identity, peaceful practices and beliefs. FBI has recently identified for domestic terrorists. The greatest challenge is, is uh, white supremacist group having been raised in Texas. I know it's no joke. Uh, if you only knew my roots and background, what is going on in the world, whether it's a white supremacist in Texas or an extremist in the Middle East or India with Hindus? Who would have thought Buddhist would be violent? And yet you look at what's going on in Myanmar. It's like no one has the market uh, on, on violence. We've all got violence going on. What, what is that about? Uh, is there any research on that, Uzma, that you've done or, or Ambassador Brownback? I mean, what have you seen, David? I mean, why so much violence coming from people? I, I don't get that. Yeah, I mean, I think less on the specific to violence and more just in terms of the growing challenges. I think one is um, kind of the phenomenon that I traced in my, my first book uh, went against claim that like Islam is not a religion. Well, then what is it, right? It's a, it's a dangerous political ideology is what these advocates say. And, and so that sort of conversion of something that's religion into politics and political ideology makes it a pretty sort of like easy target then. And, and I see resonances of it like across the, the world as well, and not just with respect to Islam, although I definitely think that what's going on with the Uyghurs has a lot to do with sort of a, a perception of Islam in that case as a, as a political threat. Um, I think that can probably be extended to all the other religious groups that are persecuted there. Um, but it's, you know, it absolutely has something that's faced Christians as well from the very founding of Christianity uh, forward in terms of how, for example, Christians are treated in some parts of India as a political ideology, how missionaries are thought as, as people who are trying to spread a, a particular ideology as opposed to, you know, engaging in an act of religious exercise. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think it's the it's what you know it's what political calls the ferocious politicization of everything, um, and the starkest form of that is turning things into pol politics, pure sort of uh, competitive, uh, dangerous, violent politics as opposed to religion. Um, I think that's part of it, and I think the lesser form of that again is is what I have identified as as just tribalism, and the way that it just sort of puts us into our you know it's. It's natural to humans to be part of a group, to be part of a tribe. And there's nothing inherently wrong with being with having a tribe. Um, but it's tribalism out of control that absolutely helps justify to members of our own group that we can engage in violence against members of another group because they pose um, you know, significant existential threats uh, to us and, and to our future. I know for a fact, Ambassador Saperstein, you worked hard in Pakistan, uh, trying to do something with the blasphemy laws. What is it in people that they can't let the governments work? I mean, you can have laws, but people have to at the same time be willing to give space. What, what is that about? Do you have any views or opinions on that? I, 
Look, r- religious groups can hold whatever attitudes they want about other religious groups. But the government cannot use its coercive power to impose religious beliefs, practices, um, uh, uh, the right and rights, um, or, or, or abridgment of rights on um, uh, on the groups in the in their country. Um, blasphemy laws are an example of where what someone says offends the majority. In almost every case, the majority of religion and the government backs um, uh, that majority religion by imposing government punishment for what's religiously uh, said. I mean, it's exactly what our framers in in saying there should be no establishment of religion and creating a part of the proposition that when Jefferson described the separation of church and state, a wall separating church and state, um, we're trying to avoid. Um, uh, here. And, uh, you know, in this country, I, I would have a slightly different approach on some of these questions than uh, I think my colleagues uh, would have. I, I think separation in church and state is one of the glories of America um, uh, here. And we gave up certain things for religious freedom. We gave up having the government support our efforts and taking government money um, and, and things like that. But the wall keeping uh, government out of religion has allowed religion to flourish with the diversity and robustness in America, unmatched in any other democracy except for India. Far more people believing in God, far more people going regularly um, uh, to worship, far more people holding religious values uh, central in their lives than any democracy that has a government-sponsored, established, preferred um, uh, religion. It's worked for us um, uh, here. And that's what we were trying to avoid, those kinds of, uh, of violations. I distinguish between fundamental fundamentalist groups and extremist groups. I don't care about what the theology of a group is. So long as they don't use their force directly to impose their views on others or the government's coercive power to impose uh, their view on others, they can believe uh, theologically whatever they want and we'll learn to live together um, uh, here. But it's the fundamental rule is you can't be imposing your views on others who disagree with you. You know, David, I agree with that. I I didn't always value separation of church and state. Uh, I, I wanted it a whole lot closer until I started working around the world. And I'm convinced it's been a gift in America, and it's the reason the church has flourished. I, I really believe that because it's free to do what it wants to, and it's got to make its case uh, not because of the money that it's got. And I've also seen uh, where there's not that separation, there's a whole lot more persecution around the world. I, I remember towards uh, the end of the last administration, Ambassador Brownback, some of my friends know that we're friends and they would text me, people uh, who work in India. They're very concerned about what's going on in India. Uh, a lot of persecution, uptick. Can you tell us about that? Uh, what is going on in India from the best that you can tell? Yeah, the, to me, you've got this kind of um, uh, merged of Hinduism and nationalism coming together. And we see it in a number of countries. You see it uh, in the Buddhist country, as you mentioned, you know, the, the, you know the, to have militant Buddhists, you're going, wait a minute, I, that, the, you can't put those two terms together. That doesn't, that doesn't fit. Uh, but it's it's a sort of merging of nationalism uh, with a religion 
And um, you're seeing it in Africa. I had a African, um, uh, I think he was an attorney general. He's in a justice department in a major African country said, you know, we've overcome a lot of tribalism, but the new tribalism is between Christians and Muslims. And if we don't get this fight under control, you're going to see a lot of carnage uh, across a number of these different countries. And I thought, I, yeah, I think you've put your finger right on it. Uh, that, but to me, Bob, at the core of it is we've set our bar too low. We've generally, as governments and people pushing it, we've said, oh, we've got to tolerate the other person. You have to tolerate Rabbi Saperstein, I, I, I follow Jesus. He uh, is Jewish. I, you've got to tolerate him. I said, no, my standard should be to respect and to love him. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, he's pursuing his faith as he believes it to be. And I should say, you know, God bless him for that. Uh, and instead, we, we, we say we need to tolerate. Well, the problem with tolerance is I tolerate today and tomorrow I don't. The beauty of respect and love is it grows. You know, as I as I get to know Good. Rabbi Saperstein, yeah, I, I respect and I love the guy. Or you and Imam Majid. I mean, you talk about an odd couple. Uh, you know, you two dancing polka around D.C. kind of <laughs> scares me, actually. I think in that image is pretty strange. But I but I love that it happened. And it wouldn't have happened if you didn't respect and love this guy. Uh, you from Tyler, Texas, uh, saying doing that. Well, that's we've, we've got to get to that standard and not the tolerance standard. Can I can I push back a little on that, um, Yara? I, I, this has been a current trend in, in interreligious discourse that we need something more than tolerance. But I'm not sure the answer is respect and love, um, Gary. Wonderful if you have it. But you said you could have tolerance one day and it could be disappear the next day. You can have respect one day and it can disappear the next day. You can have love one day. It can disappear the next day. Look at our divorce rate of people who fell in love um, and, uh, and got married. I think what you agree, and I agree on is the schema of fundamental rights even if I don't respect someone else, even if I don't love someone else in a democracy in terms of the political structure and its relation to religion, its relation to speech and press, fundamental rights protected by law, the rule of law that guarantees that those rights will be unimpeded, even by people who don't respect, tolerate or love us, is in the end more important. Hopefully, hopefully, it will then allow us to function in a way together that we can develop the kind of respect and love um, that you are talking about. Um, but the fundamental the contrast to tolerance has to, from my standpoint, be, which is a voluntary act, as you said, has to be the structure of the rule of law and the protection of fundamental rights, even for those who we may not love, who we may even hate um, uh, here or we don't respect. So it's a paradox. I, I, you know, the kind of love the Bible talks to is clear. It talks about 
love your neighbor as yourself is clearly a foundational aspiration that all of us have to open our hearts to. But in the end, it is a rule of law that will be the foundation of true freedom um, uh, uh, here until the day comes when we fulfill those biblical values. Yeah, I, I agree with the rule of law. I absolutely support the rule of law. I'm just saying when you, you see a lot of times the violence that takes place in different places around the world, and you even saw it, let's say, take Myanmar, and you had uh, Rohingya that were kicked out of villages by Buddhist neighbors that they'd been their neighbors and tolerated them the, the day before. And you know maybe you say, well, they respected them the day before. I don't know. I, to me, tolerance is a much lower bar as a society. I am still for the rule of law. Absolutely for us. So maybe we're talking about different. I think we're talking about different things. I'm talking about I, I don't think we're I don't think we're reaching out to get to know one another near as much anymore with this this That's political right. tribalism that Asma talks about, which mm-hmm. I think is true. You don't get to know each other as as well. And um, I, you know, and finally, some of the best bills I got worked through that I was able to get successfully through. One of them was the human trafficking deal, bill. Mm-hmm. I did that with Paul Wellstone. Yeah. Uh, you worked on that, David. Yeah. <clears throat> we had we had Chuck Colson and Gloria Steinem backing the same bill. In today's culture, I don't even know if you could get the two of them <laughs> to talk to each other or if they would be uh, penalized in the political tribalism for doing that. And I, but there was a respect there. Uh, if they're, you know, I don't agree with you at all, but I, I respect you. But, you know, let me just say this. There's this Jewish rabbi who has rocked my world. And I know you're going to say, yeah, Jesus. No, Jonathan Sachs. And Jonathan Sachs has helped me understand the difference between constitution and covenant. Constitution, rule of law. Covenant, rule of the heart. And that man is brilliant. And I think what we rule of law, constitution has to be the basic foundation. Covenant is what we have to give our lives for in how we treat one another. Uzma, I want to ask you, uh, I know you're an attorney. You're all attorneys. Aren't y'all having fun with a non-attorney today? <laughs> but Uzma, I want to ask you, what would you say, okay, pastors, imams, rabbis, faith leaders, here are three things that you can do to push against uh, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, any form of religious persecution, or somebody who, uh, you know, has, has a different view of life. How would you, what would you say to them? Here are three things that you can do to protect other people's rights. Sure. Well, before that, I just wanted to comment on the, the sort of Constitution Covenant piece, um, because the way I think about it is really the, the role of self-interest. And maybe it's, a, it's my understanding of the fundamentals of human nature, um, or also just sort of cynical about what's possible in a tribal society, increasingly tribal society, um, is just the, the powerful role of self-interest. And, you know, when I, the, when I was speaking earlier about uh, religious freedom for some is religious freedom for none, it's sort of like that idea of like, we just, if we just understand that if we help out that person and their claims and their interests, that ultimately it's just going to come back and help us. You know, even if we're just sort of initially functioning from a place of self-interest, which is what a constitutional framework provides, right? Like that basics are like, this is how the law works. 
help them just so you can help yourself. I think that's a starting point. And I think from there you work towards uh, the covenant piece of it, um, Bob, where you can then sort of like take it beyond self-interest to an actually altruistic approach. Um, and then so in terms of three practical things that the clerics can do to fight back against various forms of hate, um, I think the first thing is just don't support or facilitate or exacerbate the narrative uh, that makes this sort of hatred and persecution justifiable in people's minds. I think, I mean, that's the, the absolute first step. And I think in, in our present society, I think it's really hard sometimes uh, to refrain from, from just facilitating a really divisive uh, rhetoric or narrative. Um, the flip side to that, I would say, is in addition to not making things worse, make things better uh, by pulling from the parts of your faith and, and your beliefs uh, that really kind of rise above the fray. Um, I, I, in my, my writing, I insist that religious polarization has to be different from other types of polarization because we have religion and religion encourages us to be better uh, and to understand the truth resides out, outside of ourselves. And so just having that humility um, and pulling other lessons from, from our religion to help people fight back uh, against sort of the, the, the trappings of our modern discourse would be a huge, uh, a huge help. And I think the third thing um, is just sort of like educating ourselves and helping others understand about what's actually happening. I mean, I said earlier that given our sort of very polarized dynamics right now, there's a tendency for one group to dismiss, to belittle, uh, the suffering of another group, and I think just understanding the facts on the ground so that instead of just automatically having this reflexive approach where we sort of dismiss other people's suffering, we understand for what it what it is, for what it is. Um, and this goes for everybody around all different sides uh, of the debate um, and just being truer to the facts. This has been fantastic. You've stayed here, and I'm very grateful. And I've loved this. And here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to close out. I want you to think about your favorite verse from your Holy Scriptures. If you don't have a favorite verse, your life motto. But I want you to think some principle that you live by. Mm -hmm. Ambassador Brownback, give us one. Yeah, I mean, I got to go with uh, Jesus's big one. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and flesh, and your neighbor as yourself. I that may seem too too big, too broad, but he says all of the Scripture is contained within that. And, you know, as I look at it and I see people that, that I look at as living as close to that as I've seen, I'm great admirers of theirs. And I've seen a lot of people persecuted just trying to live that, uh, that way. It's good. Uzma? I would say the part of the verse in the Quran that tells us that God created us into tribes and nations, different tribes and nations, so that we may know one another. It really tells us what the point is of our difference. And Ambassador Saperstein. Um, tzedek, tzedek, tirdof, justice, justice shall you pursue. Amen. That's good. Well, I'm so grateful to all of you being with us today. And thank you for everyone who made it all the way to the end. But God bless all of you. You're my heroes, and I respect you and looked up and, and uh, followed you, uh, David and Sam and Ozma. I'm excited about you, and I'm expecting great things. Let, let's give one more shout out for your book, Politics of it's Vulnerability. Politics of Vulnerability, and is now available. All right. And the, the subtitle How to Heal Muslim Christian Relations in a Post Christian America. And that should hopefully be enticing for you. Thank you, Ozma. God bless all of you. See you next time. 
Thank you so much for joining us for this long and very informative and intriguing episode of the Bold Love Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and found this podcast helpful or interesting or thought-provoking, we would love for you to give us a review and subscribe to the podcast on the platform you're listening to. So doing this will help others find their way to this podcast. Doing this actually helps listeners around the world connect with the message. So drop us a review. It'd be very helpful if you could share this uh, on social media as well to help spread the message of bridge building and peacemaking. For full show notes, links, and details about this episode, you can find those at bobrobertsjr.com, bobrobertsjr.com, and you can find those there. We appreciate you so much for joining us. And remember, at the Bold Love Podcast, we want to encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, learn how to better love your neighbor, and learn how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. We'll see you next time.